Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanning. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Catch is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd at the MCG. Hello and welcome back to the Scoop Podcast. We are the cricket podcast dedicated to the women's game. My name is Emily Collins. And I'm Laura Jolly. And we're back with another exciting episode today. So we've been joined by Kate Parkness, who is the general manager of the Adelaide Strikers. And Kate is doing great things for the Strikers and for women in cricket and women in sport in general. Kate chats to us about her role with the Strikers and how she navigated two big bash teams through extraordinary seasons under COVID restrictions. But before we get to Kate, we had a great time being back at Junction Oval last week for the Victoria versus New South Wales WNCL matches. I'm sure plenty of Scoop listeners were um, enjoying listening to LJ dominate in the commentary box. Uh, LJ, we knew the Victorians were going to be hard to beat with their stacked lineup, but probably safe to say we didn't expect them to dominate against New South Wales in the way that they did. They looked like an absolute force, playing probably the second best team on paper in the whole competition and just uh, in both matches, dominant with the bat, dominant with the ball. You'd lock them in for the title right now if it wasn't for the fact that most of their team is going to go to New Zealand next month and won't be there for the tail end of the season. Yeah, it was certainly certainly a, a very exciting two matches to watch. Is there anyone in particular that really stood out to you, LJ, from your good position in the commentary box? I think Elise Villani make, made a real statement, scoring a century and another 80 in the second match. Pretty tough to break into the Aussie side with batting spots at the moment, but she certainly reminded selectors that she's out there and I think with the ball, Sophie Molyneux and Georgia Wareham were just outstanding. I think six wickets for Molyneux all up. Wareham got a couple of bags and they just seemed impossible to get away for those New South Wales batters. So that was good signs for the Australians. Oh, and another thing that was great to see was great to see Taylor Valemic return for Victoria. She'd been out of the game from injury for a while, but it was yeah great to see Taylor steaming in. And yeah, she was certainly happy to be back as you spoke to her on Friday, LJ. Um, but midway through that match on Friday, the final match against Victoria and New South Wales, we heard that uh, Victoria was going back into lockdown. So the Victorians finished their week on a semi-high, but it was not so good for New South Wales. We had to quickly jump on their plane out of Melbourne and back to Sydney and spend the next couple of days in lockdown, similar to what the Victorians had to do. 
Yeah, and the good news is that this morning it's been announced that the restrictions are easing, the lockdown's ending in Melbourne, but it doesn't change the fact that other states have put restrictions in place. Victoria's next matches were meant to be at Junction this coming Sunday and Tuesday. With the borders remaining closed, it's hard to see how they'll be able to go ahead in Melbourne. So um, it looks like the Vicks may have to hit the road to play those games. And even for New South Wales, their next game is meant to be in Tasmania on the 25th this month, but they'll have been in Victoria within two weeks before that, so they may not be able to make that trip. So we're going to have to um, stay tuned and expect further changes to that schedule. Yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll make sure to keep you up to date via the cricket.com.au channels. But for now, enjoy listening to Kate Harkins. We are joined today on the Scoop podcast by Kate Harkness, who is the general manager of the Adelaide Strikers and a a real leader in women's sport in Australia. Thank you, Kate, for taking the time to join us after what's been a pretty hectic Big Bash season for you. Thanks for having me, Em. No problem. There was a formal announcement back in October, I think, that you'd become the GM of the Adelaide Strikers just after the WBBL season has started. It's a pretty um, remarkable year to have taken the reins in. How are you finding the role so far? Yeah, it certainly has been a baptism of fire. Um, but luckily, I've I've been around the, the strikers for five years now. So I started back in uh, in 2016 as the operations manager. So, um, you know, fortunately, I do have experience across the business Um without being just thrown into the COVID world. Um, but it's it's certainly been a season like no other. The WBBL, um, you know, I think it, it was announced we were going to the hubs and it was, you know, a, a big shock to all of us. Nothing that, that our, our WBBL team had done before. Uh, the prospect of being away from, you know, families and homes uh, for, for six weeks uh, was quite daunting. And then throwing on the top of that was this, I don't know. You guys were possibly on these meetings as well. The um, the huge biosecurity training rollout was just. I felt like I was on a different call every night, learning <laughs> about biosecurity regulations. You know, even just learning definitions of things, yeah. um, and then you know what what these expected rules were going to be and how they were going to affect our team. Um, you know, from a from a mental um, mental health point of view, but then also you know from a physical preparation point of view, having the games a little bit more condensed, obviously not having access to, the, to exactly the facilities and the, and the resources that we would have, you know, in a home environment. So, um, you know, that was really, really quite interesting. Um, I went over to the WBBL hub, as you know, and, um, and sort of got into the swing of it. And as you say, I was, my, my appointment was announced while I was in the hub. Um, but, you know, given the year we've had um, and unfortunately, you know, a few staff across Australian cricket um, have been made redundant, you know, earlier in the year, we were actually a little short staffed. So I said, look, I used to be a media manager. I've done all these things. I'm happy to put my hand up and be a bit of a jack of all trades, Jill of all trades in the hub. So I was the team manager, I was the media manager, and I was what's called the team compliance officer, uh, which is a new role to make sure we all comply with the COVID biosecurity requirements. Um, And then the day I was announced as the GM of the strikers, it was quite funny because I'm literally sort of lugging laundry bags, you know, through the hotel thinking, (laughs) well, this isn't all champagne and corporate sweets is it what a what a, what a gm role it's, it was it, you could not have picked a more a more operational period uh where we all just had to sort of muck in and and get things done um but wbbl was sort of it was 
in hindsight, it was fantastic and it turned out a lot easier than the men's season. Mm. Um, A, because we were all based in this hub. There was no travel required. So we were all just living there, based out of there and away we went. Um, but then B, also, you know, there, there wasn't the 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 outbreaks and the and the dramas that we had into November December, um, you know there was the Parafield cluster in Adelaide. There was a the, the, mm. obviously the Northern Beaches in Sydney outbreak. There was Brisbane. There was Melbourne. There was all you know for BBL season. There was just so many curveballs thrown at us. Whereas for WBBL, in hindsight, while it was really difficult getting our heads around the biosecurity side of things and the new structure of the season, it actually went quite smoothly and it was actually and also it was probably one of the most pleasant seasons I've been involved in because although I was really quite busy wearing a few different hats um, you know the relationships I formed with my own team plus um, well not so much formed with my own team but strengthened with my own team but then the relationships that I formed with people across Australian cricket like yourselves um, and the other teams and everyone who was just all there together umpires match officials everything um, it was one of those things you look back on and go wow you know when are we ever going to get that opportunity again 100% yeah it was definitely an experience that we'll never forget and so Kate yeah you mentioned that you were sort of doing the media media manager role just wearing all the hats at the strikers is that something that you sort of tried to instill in the culture at the strikers and you sort of encourage everyone to do yeah um sort of because this year as I say it's been different we have all had to pull our weight in in different areas and we've we've got a fantastic team of people with just the best attitude um but on the other hand I'm also a really firm believer in the philosophy of staying in your lane and doing uh what you're supposed to be doing and not getting bogged down in things that aren't um, you know, your responsibility or your operational area to manage because I feel like sometimes that's where we find ourselves being really time poor um, is that we we get bogged down in things that that probably aren't ours to be bogged down in. So a little, a, a bit of a balance given that this year was so unusual um, and certainly always happy to um, help where we need gaps filled and I know um, I know the team here is as well um, so it, it was just a bit of an unusual year to test that philosophy. <laughs> sure was and you mentioned how you found the hub environment what was the feedback from the team and, and the players how did they find that? Well at the very start so in the few weeks I think it was announced maybe in like early September and I think we were due to start on the 26th of October so it was announced in early September and from the get-go, I think we were all a little worried. You know, we're going to be away from home. Um, we don't have any mothers in the strikers team. I know some other teams did, um, and I know that could have been, um, you know, a, a lot more challenging. I'm a mother. I've got two young kids, and um, and I knew that I would probably be going. So, you know, that, that's a bit of a longer business trip than the people are used to. Um, we've got a couple of fathers, though, within our coaching and support team. So there's certainly, um, you know, concerns about missing home, you know, kids being able to visit or people being able to come in and out of the hub. Um, but the education program that was run by Emma and the team at, um, at Cricket Australia was really comprehensive, really thorough. And I think it really put everyone's minds at ease that, look, we're going to be looked after really, really well. And once we got there, I think it just sort of surpassed everyone's expectations. Um, I think we, we knew that we'd be confined to the hotel. And I think for the first four or whatever it was weeks, we were allowed out to walk, but we couldn't go out and, you know, grab a coffee or, um, sorry, as in sit down and have a coffee or get takeaway or that kind of thing. Um, but when we got to Sydney Olympic Park, 
it's just the most magnificent infrastructure in terms of, I mean, obviously it had to host an Olympics, right? So it's got to host tens and hundreds of thousands of people. But you've just got these beautiful, like wide footpaths, wide courtyards, you know, lots of green space. Um, and our, our players could go and, you know, ride bikes, go for runs, go for walks together. Um, our staff had allocated times to go to the gym to keep fit. Um, you know, I don't know about you too, but I rolled out of there about seven kilos heavier because the food was just nonstop. Um, we were just yep. so well looked after, you know, smoothie bars and coffee on tap and toasted sandwich bar all hours and all just, bad. you know, beautiful meals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was fantastic. And I think, um, you know, by about day four, our girls, our, you know, our players um, were having the time of their life. And, you know, we set up a little mini golf course out of, you know, bins and ramp, all sorts of things that they'd found in our, you know, in, in their rooms. We all had our own floor, which was um, really good. So we could be by ourselves with our team if we just needed you know, to, to, to quieten down and have, have a bit of alone time. But then for those who are more social butterflies who've got, you know, other teammates in other teams, you know, Aussie teammates or WNCL teammates or, or whatever, internationals, you know, a lot of the South Africans would uh, get together, etc. Um, you know, it was really, really well set up. And to be honest, I, I left after the three-week mark uh, because I had to get back here to um, to get going with with BBL and and was relieved by our, our normal team manager Emily. Um, but by but you know I, so I think I had that three-week mark in mind. So mentally, I was sort of ready to go. I, I knew that's when I was going, but. I didn't notice any sort of um, fatigue or anything like that fr from our players. In fact, they were all really embracing it and having a great time. And a few of them had family come to visit midway through, um, you know, and then by the end of the season, the ladder was, I don't know if you remember, the ladder was just so tight. We were, we were one, we were one washout away from, you know, potentially mm. finishing third, I think. Um, and we finished fifth. So, well, you know, really, dis really disappointing to, um, you know, to go through, to, to go through the experience together and feel like we were up there, uh, but then to just miss out by a whisker. Um, but then, you know, this, and this happened with the men as well. We, we, we lost our first final and, and that's it. We were out and you're flat, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to not be excited to, to be able to go back to your own bed um, and, you know, go and sit down and have a meal and, and all those sorts of things. But overwhelmingly, to answer your question quickly, <laughs> as I didn't just do, um, overwhelmingly, the feedback was really, really positive and our players really took a great experience out of it. Yeah, 100%. And it definitely seemed like the strikers, they were one of the teams that always had a smile on their faces and that and that probably helped their cricket as well. And then it was sort of onto the straight onto the BBL. Another was another remarkable season, as, you, as you've told us, like you had a fair bit of cricket in Adelaide and yeah, before the season even started, you had to shift the whole strikers team out of Adelaide and into Coffs Harbour. So did you sort of learn to just react to things as they come and just really do things on the fly? Yes, it's been a very um, big professionally developing year for me because I am a planner. You know, oh, I have no. a plan A, plan B, <laughs> and, um, and 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 that do you know that usually really works for me. You know, um, if, if if you planned in advance, then you, you then you're ready to go. This year, just threw that all on its head. So yes, I did learn that. I mean, you know, we were all sent to work from home. I think it was around the 24th of March, and you know, and, and we all sort of took annual leave for three weeks. And I remember being in all the BBLGM planning meetings and, you know, every week it would just be different and there'd be different scenarios thrown up, um, you know, all with the same core priorities, but, you know, 
I think it was end of May, the, the, the first Victorian lockdown happened and we thought, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? You know, we had all these scenarios going, going round. Um, you know, I'm feeling for the poor AFL who, you know, literally had to just do it that second, you know, figure it out and, and make a plan for this weekend. Whereas we could, you know, watch and learn from the winter codes. Um, but, you know, we were still just busy little bees figuring out how it was going to look for us. Um, you know, so we announced our fixtures in July, which were not the fixtures that ended up happening for either league. Um, the WBBL, as I said, was, um, you know, was confirmed as the Sydney bubble um, in September. And then BBL, I think, um, the final version of that came out sort of not till late November, which is just unheard of. You know, usually we're, by July, we're all getting itchy feet going, come on, we need to know, we need to plan, you know, July, wow, you know, we, we need to get this finalised. Um, and this year it's, you know, it's November. It's, it's it's crazy. And then, you know, we also, the SACA also had our test match um, in the middle of December. So when this Parafield cluster hit, this was, I think it was, I want to say first or second week of November. I remember I was at my parents' house on, on a Sunday night seeing on the news three local cases. Oh, you know, that's not good. Adelaide's usually got nothing, you know. Oh. In the morning, you know, you turn on breakfast radio on the way in and it's 17. And I rang Alistair Dobson, head of Big Bash, and I said, um, you know, have you seen what's happening here? And he said, yeah, I have. I'm just on it. I'm speaking with government relations standby. And I think by two o'clock that afternoon, Alistair had me on the phone saying, I think you need to get all SA-based players out of there within 24 hours. Um, Victoria's closed their border to you. Queensland's closed their border to you. Western Australia's closed their border to you. The only place you can go is New South Wales. I'm suggesting, you know, we're suggesting you go to Coss Harbour. So our our male, our male players had just come off a Shield season, you know, the first half of the Shield season. You know, mm. we had guys in Kangaroo Island. We had guys down um, in, you know, playing golf. And we had to say, sorry, guys, uh, come on back. No more holidays. You got to go. And of honestly never felt such admiration and respect for this group that they all just said, okay, yep, got to do it. Um, you know, I think if it was me being told to Coffs Har to go to Coffs Harbour in tw 24 hours notice, so I, I don't know if I can make that happen, you know. Um, but ultimately we did and they spent two weeks there in Coffs um, just to make sure that they'd, you know, they wouldn't have the SA taint um, and be allowed into Hobart to start the season because if you've got a team that can't start the season, that just puts – you, you know, your ability to, to deliver those 61 games into absolute chaos just can't happen. And then, and that's just got huge flow on effects. Um, so, you know, in SA, we're thinking, you know, is the test match still going to happen? You know, after about a week, the Parafield cluster turned out to not be as serious as it was forecast. So things actually yeah. did return to normalcy. Um, from my point of view, I don't work on test cricket. I just work on Big Bash. So all I was thinking was, are we going to be able to deliver these five games for our strikers fans? Are we going mm -hmm. to be able to keep them here? Um, and ultimately we were because ultimately SA got over that parafield cluster um, and we actually became sort of one of the havens, you know. Um, our players were supposed mm -hmm. to live in Melbourne and Sydney towards the back end of the season, but instead they stayed in Adelaide. Um, and, you know, by the first or second week of January, we delivered our five games and we were on standby to host uh, another five at the back end of the season, depending on the border situation with Sydney and Melbourne. So we ended up delivering uh, 10 games of cricket here in the space of about five weeks, which is more than ever. Um, and it's a real testament to the team here, the events team, the commercial team, membership team who were able to, who were able to get those off the ground so quickly. Um, but 
to be honest, we just we just did not have another choice. And um, and I always say it's amazing what you can do when you don't have a choice. It applies to all facets of life. You think, no, you can't do that. No way. No, you don't have a choice. You got to do it. Yeah, <laughs> get it done. So get, get it done. Was it pleasing to be able to deliver all those games in the end for the home fans and to actually have fans at the stadium and for the strikers to play in front of, of their people? Definitely. I mean, that was. It, it, it's our number one priority is our fans. You know, that's why we exist as a league is to is to play for our fans. So I felt so much for the Sydney teams who weren't able to do that this season. Um, and while we were delighted to, to get those games that were originally, um, you know, slated for Sydney, um, you know, it was very bittersweet because I, I would not begrudge anyone that, you know, that's why we exist is for our fans and they, they're what keep us alive. Um, so it was fantastic to have... Look, it was to be honest. In the environment, it was fantastic to have five games, and to have crowds. You know, we had some we had some fantastic support from SA Health in order to make that happen, uh, in order to open our stadium to fans and to allow them a great match day experience. But then to get the other five at the end, I mean, it was just just a bonus. Um, but we always say, um, you know, the Adelaide Strikers have got the best fans in the league, and we we believe that right down to our core. Um, and if anyone deserved a little bit of extra cricket this season, it's Strikers fans. So we were we were really really pleased. So good. And to just go back in time a bit, what was your path to becoming GM of the Strikers? What did you study and, and was working in sport always something you wanted to do? Uh, yes, it definitely was. Uh, in my high school yearbook, um, I wanted to be a sport journalist or a sports agent. I don't want to be either of those two things anymore, but I did also, I did always want to be in sport. Um, I studied journalism at uni and um, and while I was there, I had a part-time job as a receptionist at one of the Gold Coast Tennis Academies, which was the absolute perfect little step into this industry because, you know, you're not trying to get a job at, you know, a major AFL team when you've got zero experience or zero education behind you, um, but you are in the sports industry, you know, you learn little things. Um, so then after that, um, I worked for the federal sports minister in Brisbane, which was back in 2006, seven. Um, and I was just, I was an electorate officer there. So I was in sort of a reasonably entry level administrative job there, but again, still, still with that exposure to the, to the federal sports industry, which was just invaluable. Um, and then soon after that, I, I got a role as, as the commercial coordinator at, uh, the Brisbane Lions football club. Uh, under Phil Rigby, who now works for Cricket oh, Australia as the um, as the National Commercial <laughs> Development Manager. Yes, yeah, so Phil and I go a long way back. So he was my first boss at the Brisbane Lions nice. uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, from there, I sort of moved into um, into media and marketing roles. I was in that, that first role for about a year, um, but was still keen on the journalism side of things. So I moved into media and marketing roles and I was at the Brisbane Lions for around three and a half years. Um, my husband and I then moved down to Melbourne where I was at the Richmond Football Club. So I've worked at a couple of different AFL clubs in that sort of media marketing um, and event presentation space. So in Richmond, that's where I really um, got a lot more experience with with match day presentation and fan engagement, uh, which was just a wonderful, wonderful organisation to work for. Um, and then my husband and I had our first daughter, Sarah, about five years ago, and we moved back to Adelaide um, because this is where all the free babysitters are, really, all the grandparents and aunties and uncles. <laughs> um, you know, great, great to be surrounded by support when you've got yeah. young kids. Yeah, so, so Jared and I moved, moved home to, to Adelaide uh, and so glad we did. And within about sort of six months of being back, 
um, I, I landed this job at the Strikers and I started as the operations manager. So um, the way the SACA works, and, and I think most of the BBL clubs works, um, is that sort of we've, we've got the state association, which is the SACA, um, and, you know, we might have you know, a marketing manager or a, you know, a sponsorship account manager and a membership manager and all these um, different roles that work for the SACA. Um, then there was me as the operations manager. And basically I was the only person at the SACA who only worked on the strikers. So our marketing manager is the marketing manager for the strikers, but is also the marketing manager for SACA, for, um, you know, the domestic, the state domestic comps, for community cricket, etc. You know, strikers is the main customer facing uh, side of SACA. So certainly a lot of roles work predominantly on the strikers. So there's a team of about sort of 15, 20 people here who all um, who all have their hands in the strikers in some way, shape, shape or form. It may not be their, their, what they're, you know, working 40 hours a week on, but they may be working 30 hours a week on it, for instance. Um, so what I do, so as the operations manager, um, I sort of, you know, drove the train, as I like to call it, and, um, and sort of managed that group of people and kept us all aligned and, and um, you know, and then, you know, the old other duties as required, there's a hundred <laughs> other things that, that, that you end up doing as the operations manager. Yeah. Um, and I was hired under uh, Bronwyn Cly, who was the the GM of the strikers before me, um, who who then moved on to be the CEO of Netball SA, and who is oh. just who's a wonderful, wonderful women leader in sport. Um, so Bronnie left, and when Bronnie left, I was in the acting role for a while. We had a few structural changes at SACA, um, and then yeah, October last year. So it's been about five months now. Um, I, was, I was appointed in a full time capacity. So, I mean, really, my story is is a very old, boring story of you know, start at entry level and slowly work your way up. And that's, that's, I suppose, how, how I got to where I am now. Nice. It's definitely not boring. And Kate, were you always <laughs> sort of super ambitious and super driven to make an impact? Like, is that sort of how you sort of got to where you are now? Um, I wouldn't say super ambitious, but I'm absolutely driven to, to the philosophy that sport improves people's lives. Yeah. And that's why I turn up to work every day and what really drives me, because it's easy to say, um, you know, sport, it's just sport. It's just elite sport, you know, whatever. You're not mm. saving lives. Um, I, I do not agree with that at all. Um, I think, you know, it, it, sport participating in sport obviously has huge physical and mental health benefits. It brings people together. It brings families together. But then supporting, you know, supporting sport from an elite point of view as well has has a huge impact on people's lives you know up, ups and downs there's roller coasters i get it um but ultimately it comes back to i think sport plays a huge role in people's lives and and largely for the better um and i think it's really important um it, it's a really important role to be the custodian of that um and and to keep that going that's what really motivates me um more, more so than than ambition or anything like that and throughout your career, have you ever had any negative experiences or, or come up against any challenges based on your gender? Look, Laura, not not directly, but who knows? You know, you don't. Um, there's, you know, I, I think certainly, um, you know, unconscious biases exist in some in some areas of sport, and fortunately, those are mostly horror stories that I've heard because the SACA has. None of that. The SACA is fantastic, a fantastic supporter of women. It's in, it's there in our strategy. Um, and we've got a chief executive who, who um, 
who brings that from the top down, you know. So when you've got a really strong leader and leadership group who really believe in that, uh, that does filter down through the organisation. Um, so for myself personally, I, no, I don't have any personal horror stories, uh, but but no doubt, you know, some some organisations still have a way to go. Yeah, for sure. And Kate, you've been involved in sport for a long time now. In your time in sport, how do you think it's been enriched by allowing women to play a more central role in things like administration, broadcasting, and sort of even in the elite game? Oh, hugely. I mean, diversity just needs to be a top priority because mm. um, it, it, it can it can only enrich everything having different perspectives you're engaging different people um, as in as in um, by bringing diversity to your industry you're you're reaching you're, you're doubling you're tripling you're quadrupling your customer base you know why, why on earth would you just go for one type of person um, you know when you can introduce to, to so many more um, you know I suppose I, I probably only started in this industry for the last 15 years, um, I haven't found it, you know, overtly sexist or anything like that. If we go back to the 70s and 80s where there was just, you know, where where it was nothing like it is today, um, there'd be some starker contrasts. But I've always worked with fantastic women across my time in sport and that's at both upper management level you know at Richmond the the president was was a woman when I started um, at the Brisbane Lions we had women on the executive team there so I've always um, been able to have um, you know really good people to look up to um, and I suppose that's part of it you know you can't be what you can't see but I've fortunately um, been able to see it in my time in professional sport um, there's not as many women in the management level as as you'd like there to be across sport industry the the numbers tell us that um but i do hope it's only a matter of time because we've got wonderful wonderful women at the middle management and and at lower management levels who are, no doubt will be will be running all these sports in, in five ten years no doubt at all what do you think can be done to get more women into those leadership roles across sport mm. I think it. I think it all starts with um, with your organisation and your and as I say, your management from top down. You need you need leaders who truly believe that diversity is important for your organisation and actively push it. Uh, so we're fortunate to have that here at SACA, um, but but that's where it comes from. It, you know, if you if it's not in your organisation strategy, if you're not living and breathing it, then it, it doesn't happen and it doesn't filter down. Um, you know, you need to provide opportunities, but you also need to provide. Um, a workplace where women feel encouraged to come and work and um and you know and and that attracts women into that workplace in the in the first place um which i think cricket's doing a really really good job there with its women and girls strategy um you know more and more and more little girls are playing cricket um you know and so if you look at a you look at a 12 year old girl now who who's grown up with cricket participation being much more of a thing than when i was a little girl um you know, in 10 years, they'll be 22 and they'll say, well, why wouldn't I want to work in cricket? You know, that's one of my sports. It's great. So, um, you know, things take time, definitely. Um, but I think just that cultural shift is happening. And um, yeah, invite me back on your podcast in 10 years and we'll talk about it then. Lock it in. What, wow. What's the scoop going to be like in 10 years? <laughs> and Kate, any advice that you or lessons that you've learned along the way in your career that you'd sort of pass on to young women who want to want to reach that leadership level in sport? Definitely. I mean, um, I suppose on the one hand, 
you know, get out there, network, you know, get, get your LinkedIn going, all that sort of thing, attend events, get to know people around your industry. Absolutely. I think that's all really important. Um, but the, on the other hand, my advice is be patient um, because things don't just happen overnight. Um, probably your first job out of uni will not be here at, at, a, at a state sporting organisation or at an, at an AFL or NRL club. You know, that's probably not going to be your first job. So I'm not saying don't have um, high standards or, um, or, you know, shoot for your goals, but also just be patient because, it, you know, while we've got great people working in this industry, we always need to remember that it's such a privilege to work in professional sport and that thousands of people want to do it as well. Um, and, you know, it's a cliche, but we are the custodians till the next lot come along, you know, to administrate the sport. So absolutely just be patient. And, um, you know, my advice, you know, on a practical level, if you are wanting to get into professional sport, um, my advice is that once you're in and you can show that you're competent, you're a superstar, um, that's where your path will take off. So don't worry too much about if the, if the first role you take in sport is not your dream job. It's probably not going to be. If it is, you know, let us know what your magic is, please. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, that, that's not going to happen. But once you're in an organisation and they see that you're a great operator, that you're willing to have a go, that you can follow a piece of string, those are my, those are my two, you know, top criteria. Are you switched on? Can you follow a piece of string? You know, are you willing to, to get stuck in and, and have a go? A lot of, you know, a lot of the rest of it is teachable, you know, and a lot of the rest of it is transferable skills. If you're switched on in one area, you know, someone can explain to you how to do something else. Um, so once you've got your foot in the door, just all about working hard, um, getting yourself a great mentor. So, um, you know, find someone that you look up to. Most people are very flattered if um, if you ask them to have a coffee with you and tell them, you know, all your secrets. People, you know, people, are, are, I find, especially women, are very willing to help, to help people come through because we all need help as well as we came through. So those would probably be my main pieces of advice. Nice. It sounds like very sound advice to me, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Scoop podcast. I'm sure plenty of young women will hear that and be very inspired. Congratulations on the Big Bash season and we look forward to catching up in the future. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Laura. Healy's away. Australia away. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanny. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Catch is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup.